Welcome and greetings, career-minded superstars. You are listening to the exclusive Career Coach, your podcast for all things career. And I'm Lisa Edwards, the indispensable career coach for superstars just like you. Now let's dig into this week's topic, shall we? Go from dragging yourself to work each day to finding a job you love. The Career Spring program is for high achieving and ambitious mid level professionals like you who are looking for a job that uses your zone of genius, recognizes your value, and pays you what you're worth. If you're ready to learn more, schedule a complimentary consult using the link to my calendar in the show notes. Be sure to follow me on Exclusive Career Coaching on Facebook, Lisa Edwards on LinkedIn, and Lisa.Edwards on Instagram. Greetings. How is everybody doing today? I have a guest with me today and I'm really excited. Jawad reached out to me, I don't know, probably at the end of last year uh, about the podcast. And I, as I've told you guys before, I get a lot of requests, at least one a day to be on the podcast. And so many of them aren't appropriate for you guys, uh, or I think it's too much overlap. I'm very protective about what I bring to you. But the topic of moving into the executive ranks how do you you know how do you get there what are the tricks and tips that you need to know i think that's such an important topic for for this audience and so i was thrilled that jawad has expertise in that area and so i would like to start by saying jawad thank you so much for being on the podcast it's my pleasure lisa thank you so much so much for having me why don't you start by telling the folks your story tell them a little bit about yourself sure so I'm currently serving as the CFO at Axon. We're a publicly traded company. We, we make the Taser. The company was called Taser International for a number of years. That's how it um, really, uh, that's its claim to fame. And then a few years ago, we started getting beyond the Taser into body cameras. And really what differentiated us there was we made an investment in a cloud infrastructure and all the digital evidence management and all the infrastructure to manage the video that comes from the, from the cameras we did that in the cloud when a lot of other competitors did that on premise and that differentiated us. And so the company has grown fairly quickly beyond just tasers into not only body cameras, but cloud software as well. And we're now expanding beyond just the video aspect of it more into uh, enterprise software for law enforcement and for federal customers like dispatch and uh, you know report writing, cloud-based report writing. We've invested in artificial intelligence technology. So it's, it's a very forward-thinking tech company today. Uh, it's, that's what we've transformed into. And I've been here since 2017. Prior to that, I was at a private equity-backed company as the CFO there. And uh, prior to that, I was at GE for the first 13 years of my career. I think that's excellent. And and it was fascinating to hear about Axon because it's it's one of those things. And when you do what I do for a living, I'm always being exposed to new career paths, new industries, new companies. And so whenever I find a new one like this and, and it gets my mind thinking about who is this a good fit for and and uh, what kind of positions do they need, it, it just really excites my brain fires on this stuff. So thank you for that. <laughs> Yeah, of course. I Yeah, and it's one of the things I'm so excited about our conversation today, because at Axon, I not only own finance, but I own our IT and legal functions, our consumer business reports into me. In my last job, I owned finance, legal, and HR. Uh, we also bought 10 companies in the span of three years. And so I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of different businesses functions. I've, I've seen a lot of different executives and types of executives. And so I feel like I've got a lot to add here. 
And I love that you have expanded beyond the 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 finance function in these last couple of jobs, which I think is uh, really speaks highly of your leadership skills. And also, I think it just allows you to spread your wings a lot more, doesn't it? You know, it's yeah. It it. it I feel like this is a big part of what I was hoping to accomplish in my career when I. And I talk about this in my book, Define My Own North Star. My North Star was to run a business someday. And the proxy I used at the time was to be a CEO. But really what I was excited by was not so much the title, but the idea of like, you know, running a business. And I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm doing that today because I, I'm not just owning finance. I own a big chunk of the company and I, you know, help run it with the rest of our executive team. We were very tight knit. And so I think just being very clear with myself about that North Star and what I wanted helped me get to where I am. That's such a good point to have that goal and allow yourself to dream big. And, and so I'm guessing, and I, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm guessing that you didn't get to be the CFO right out of college. Am I right? Correct. <laughs> so there was a journey of some yes. sort to get you to the executive ranks. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was a very interesting journey. I, you know, when I was in college, you know, and I, I talk about this in the book, how I um, am first generation. My parents came here from Pakistan and they very much wanted to me wanted me to be either a doctor or an engineer, and so I started college pre med, uh, and I got a C in chemistry. My dad was devastated because he has a he's he's got his master's in chemistry. He's a chemical engineer by trade, um, and I just was like, guys, I can't do this. Like, I if I do this to make you happy, I don't know if I'm going to succeed. I'm not very passionate about it. So took you know it took some time, and by the end of my freshman year, decided I wanted to be an economics major. And everyone was around me was a little nervous because they weren't sure what I was going to do with that. I ended up getting an internship at Fidelity Investments and everyone, you know, my parents and stuff sort of calmed down a little bit. Um, but I, you know, really didn't have a plan beyond that. I just, I liked economics. Um, what I loved about economics, which I think ended up sort of foreshadowing my career and like how I think about leadership. What I love about economics is with, you know, you can get big picture with macroeconomics and you can look at like bigger picture trends. But with microeconomics, you can really get down to the like lowest level of detail and understand what the smallest inputs do on that bigger picture. And I think that's what has made me effective as a leader is being both detail oriented and being very granular and making sure that I uh, am you know, getting under the hood and understanding all the different component parts of a business, but then taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture. I think that's a really important skill as a leader. Um, and so I graduated from college I had an opportunity to join GE in their leadership development program. And I thought, look, this is a big, well-known company. They've got a great you know, uh, reputation for developing young talent. So I went there thinking I'd only be there for a couple of years and then I would leave to go get my MBA. And what I found was after those two years, every job opportunity that I had at GE felt like it was gonna give me more and teach me more than I could learn in a classroom. So I kept you know, staying on for another year to two years and signing up for different assignments. And it wasn't actually until my first divisional CFO role. I just, so I just basically stayed at GE and did these leadership development programs for probably the first five years of my career. Um, and then I got a quote unquote real job as a risk manager at aircraft engines. And it was, what was great about that, Lisa, was it was really the intersection of a bunch of different functions. It was finance, it was sales, it was operations. You had to really understand the deals that you were underwriting. Now this was so GE aircraft engines, the way they make money is not on the engine itself, it's on the service contracts. And the airlines, they typically sign like 30 year service contracts because they keep the planes for that long. And so the margin on those contracts is very important and you, you have to model out when is the engine gonna come off wing? 
you know, what types of reasons is it going to come off the wing for like, you know, how much is each event going to cost? And you have to look at all these different factors. You've also got to look at where the airline's flying. Like for example, airlines that operate in the Middle East, there's a lot of dust and sand in the air and they typically drive more engine overhauls than someone flying in like, you know, in the UK where it's a pretty moderate temperate climate. Uh, and so you have to understand all these different inputs to underwrite the deal. And I did that probably about two years, then went from there to an uh, aircraft leasing business and basically just kept sort of climbing the, you know, the ranks as far as taking on more and more responsibility. And then finally in 2010, I had the opportunity to be a divisional CFO and it was that role that really launched my career into orbit from there. Interesting when you were talking about the kind of things that go into pricing out the contracts, what really came up for me was there's a little bit of actuarial science going on with what you were doing. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not an actuary, but that's a really big part. Uh, that role was pretty transformative for me as well. I'm actually glad you asked about that because that role itself was fairly technical. You had to understand this one skill set really deeply. You had to understand all the different aspects of how to underwrite a service contract, but it, it wasn't all that quote unquote strategic, right? I had to like, I had to get really, really good at this one set of skills in order to be successful. And the reason I'm talking about that is because today, one of the things I see with younger folks that are, you know, just, just fresh out of school sometimes, and maybe sometimes it's two, three years out of school, they tell me that they want to be strategic and they want to come work for me in corporate strategy or in investor relations. And they, they, I keep hearing that theme. Like, I just, I want to be more strategic. And what you, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is you can't be strategic unless you've had a certain set of experiences or, you know, just a certain amount of time under your belt. And that's nothing personal. It's just math. Like if you haven't done certain things or, you know, gotten a core set of competencies in anything really, then you can't be strategic you know, it doesn't matter what books you read or who you know, or what YouTube videos you watched, right? Like being strategic is something that you have to grow into. You know, what I'm reminded of when you say that is when I was in graduate school, I have a public administration, a master's in public administration. And most of us that were in the classes were out in the work world. I was one of those people. And we had a few recent graduates in there and we would have these case studies to do. And the majority of us that were out in the work world, we would sit down and talk about how we had handled a similar situation and, you know, how we approached it. And we would talk about it from that perspective. And the, the youngins in the class would, would want to know what the right answer was. And they, did, they had nothing to pull from, which is why I think personally master's degrees need to be a few years out from, from bachelor's. You need to have some experience under your, your belt. But you're, you're right. It, at, at those upper levels, you're pulling from all of the things that you've done and all of the experiences that you've had, and that's all going into the blender to make the decisions. There's not a right answer. It's just what you decide to do based on all the information you have. That's exactly right, Lisa. And you touch upon something that I mentioned in the book, which is this idea of, you know, do you need an MBA? I happen to think, yes, everyone should have an MBA. It doesn't matter, you know, what you do. Uh, I think it's a very important degree to have. And when you get it, I am very much in alignment with you that the longer you wait, the more you're going to get out of it. Yes. Give yourself at least five years out there in the work world. And I, I have to, to say that I resonate with the mom and dad want me to be a doctor because I, my last job in higher education was at a highly select uh, liberal arts university. 
And these were students for whom the sky was truly the, the limit. And there were so many of them that came in and, as pre-med and they had no more interest in cutting someone open or taking their pulse than I did. But yeah. that was the, the culture, you know, you're really smart, you must, you must be a doctor. And right. uh, so we had a lot of folks leaving. <laughs> it was a mass exodus out of that program once the kids were like, you know what, I don't have to do what mom and dad say I have to do. Yep. <laughs> so why don't you kind of share with us what was different for you once you entered into an executive role? Like, I guess I'm asking kind of what were your biggest surprises for you personally when you sort of stepped into those roles? Yeah, one of the biggest surprises, and I know this seems sort of obvious that, you know, you would have this happen to you, um, but it, it, it did take me a little bit by surprise is when you get into bigger and bigger leadership roles and you become an executive, the span of influence that you have, whether it's over a function or, a, you know, a division or an entire company, it gets that much bigger and people are looking up to you. They're not only looking to you for direction on, you know, like, You've, you've got a set of vision, you've got a, you know, set objectives and like help communicate those and tell people what they need to be working on. They're looking to you for that for sure. But they're also looking to you in, in some ways as to set an example, like what type of a leader are you? Are you setting the tone for the culture? You know, not, and I started to understand how they talk about this idea of tone from the top and the culture of a company is really defined by its, really by its CEO. And then right after that, most immediately by the rest of the executive team. And it sort of flows down from there. And that's absolutely true. And the reason for that is, is because people are looking to their leaders to be role models to some degree. And that was one thing that I had to very quickly learn and be mindful of is if I got frustrated or upset or whatever, right? Like I couldn't let my emotions show to the same degree because people would pick up on that. And then they would, it would, you know, impact their days and their mood. It would also sometimes impact their confidence in the business, right? Like if you're in a business that's not doing all that great and, you know, you as the leader are, your body language is sort of dour and, and, and you know, a little bit, if you're being moody yourself, then people are going to start to question, like, what's the future of this company? You know, do I need to be looking somewhere else? So the body language matters, you know, your, um, your attitude, your the sort of positivity that you radiate, all that stuff really matters because people are looking to you for these signals. I think the message is there is no time that you're not being observed. You should just assume that you are always being observed in the office and out of the office. I certainly have had incidences where I've run into someone at the Walmart, especially back when I was in higher education. And then I kind of had to think back, okay, I hope I was, you know, well-behaved because obviously they were watching me when they came up to, to say hello to me. So what, do you, what would you say are three strategies that would be critical to make someone an optimal candidate for an executive position? So what's the advice you want to give to the listeners who want to get into the executive ranks? So the first one we touched upon briefly, which was you have to define your North Star. Everyone needs to do this. You have to be very clear about it. Where is it that you're heading? You'd be surprised. This is the first question I ask in interviews and it's, and I do a lot of interviews and you'd be surprised how many people have actually not thought through this, but you have to be very clear about it and not just clear in your mind, but I would write it down, either write it down on a piece of paper in a notebook. Um, I'm a very visual person. So I like to visualize things and I've done things like created magazine covers. I got a fortune magazine cover for the company. Like what, you know, I want us to accomplish by 2030. Um, you can do like you know, maybe like a newspaper headline, whatever it is, whatever really excites you, but something visual for you to look at and really reflect on 
that is your end state. And that's so important because if you don't know where you're going, then how do you expect other people to help you? Right? Like if you were to, if you were driving and you're lost and you roll your window down, ask someone for directions and they say, okay, yeah, sure. I can help you. Where are you going? And you say, I don't know. How, how is that person going to help you? Uh, it's sort of the same thing with your career. So like people sometimes come to me for advice and say, you know, I just love your, I, I admire what you've done and accomplished. And I'd love some career advice. And I, and I ask them, great, where are you headed? What's your North star? And they say, well, I, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. And I, you know, obviously I'm sympathetic to that. I want to help people understand that, but like, that's something you've really got to define for yourself. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. The second one I would say is to once, once you've, once you've done that and you've defined where you're headed, you have to get really intentional and purposeful about your brand in the narrative that surrounds you, because that's, what's going to help you get to where you're going. Just like, you know, you, you hear a lot about like, you know, reputations take months and years decades to build and they can be destroyed in an instant, you know, in an instant, it's the same thing with your brand. You have to be very protective about your brand and the narrative that forms around you. And the reason for that is a lot of what happens in your career as you, you know, as you rise into bigger and bigger positions, they come down to moments, whether it's moments in an interview, moments in a hallway where you run into someone like a, you know, a a higher up executive or maybe an investor and the, uh, the time that you have to leave a really positive impact is actually fairly small. Like if I go back and look at my career and look at the moments where something happened that was just hugely transformative for me, they're typically only a few minutes at a time. And people, you know, the first impressions, all that stuff people say is, is pretty, uh, is, is very spot on. And so you have to be, you know, again, mindful about the narrative. And because of that, one thing I find people do is they're self-deprecating too soon. And what I mean by that is if you read my book, I'm generally pretty self-deprecating, but I feel like I can do that because I'm at a point in my career where I'm not really chasing a promotion. I'm not looking for another job. I'm really more focused on trying to help other people get to where they want to go. And I talk to younger people and I'll ask them about like, you know, tell me about yourself and you know, what makes you special, et cetera. And sometimes people will say things like, well, I'm a little rough around the edges or you know, I, I haven't always had a lot of confidence or, you know, I'm not the best at X. And what they're doing is those things might be true for that person, but what they're doing is they're putting a narrative, they're putting data points out there that become part of their narrative that don't need to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have to be very careful about that. And all those things might be true. And what's important is that you know that and that you're self-aware and that you're working on it. Other people don't need to know that. Why would you give someone else some type of data point on you that they could use against you. Like when you're in an interview, hopefully you do well, but that person's going to go and talk to some other folks. All right, great. Let's talk about Lisa and how she did in the interview. And everyone wants, you know, to do a good job and be diligent and they'll talk about pros and cons. Why would you add something to the cons column for them? And then the third thing is really around communication. So it's just, it's so, so important. I can't underscore. You have to really work at it. People We'll hear they'll hear things like you've got to be a good communicator to become an executive. People will say, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. That makes sense. But you have to really work at it. You have to a be self-aware and understand what is holding you back from being clear, concise, compelling. Those three C's really are I, I'd find the most important things that people sometimes struggle with. You've got to be all three of those, and you have to you have to work at it. You have to be self-aware enough to know where you're not necessarily strong and really work at it. Me, for example, I didn't always have the most 
confidence. When I was younger, I had a little bit of an accent. Like I said, I was first generation American and sometimes it would come through and, and people would make fun of me for it. And I was very self-conscious about speaking up in a public setting and would, would therefore like not speak up and, and be, I, I had like a little bit of a complex over and I had to, I had to get over that. I worked with a, a speech coach. I read all these books on how to enunciate more clearly, how to better pronounce words and just sort of, you know, take all that self-doubt out. I spent a lot of time working on my uh, inflection, the inflection in my voice and how I'm projecting my voice, all the, like I can, I could go on and on, but I spent a lot of time on my own ability to communicate, not just like how I sound, but also like, how do I tell a story in a compelling way and really cut to the heart of the matter? All this is to say that your ability to communicate is really what's going to separate you from the pack. I couldn't agree more. Communication is one of those things that most people think they're good at and very few of them are right about themselves. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Oh my goodness. Yes. The stories we could both tell, I'm sure. So let's, let's flip the script on this. What are three pitfalls that you see people making that you see is really hindering their chances for entering into the executive ranks? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's stay with the communication theme. Cause one thing that I see that um, is, is a bit of a pitfall, pitfall is when people don't communicate enough. You can never over communicate, but if you're not communicating enough, that can be a problem, especially when you surprise people. One of the worst things that you can do when you talk about like, you know, job security and having to worry about that is to constantly surprise people. So if you surprise your team, your bosses, et cetera, then usually that signals that you don't really have command of your, your team or your organization. You know, and you, you also want to make sure that you're communicating and, and you're, you're signaling risks or problems ahead of time, but that you're also coming forward with the solution. So, you know, you want to own up to it and say, okay, everyone, I want to let you know, here's an issue that's developing, explain what the issue is, but then also offer some strategies as to, or some, you know, possible solutions or paths forward. What you don't want to do is just drop a turd in everyone's punch bowl and then walk away, right? <laughs> you want to, you, you want to really offer some solutions as well. And so that, that to me comes back to communication. The, the next one I would say, and I see this all the time is to, is, is just don't self-sabotage. Don't self-sabotage. So many people, when they get to the executive ranks are talented and driven and ambitious and they've, you know, they're accomplished and they've, you know, they've done a lot to earn their way there. And the reason that they don't stay there or the reason they don't progress any further more often than not, Lisa, what I see is because of something they've done to self-sabotage themselves. A lot of what it comes down to is just understanding what battles do you want to fight? Like picking and choosing your battle. You can, everything can't be a battle, right? You got to really decide when you get into an argument with someone or, or, or a discussion, like, is this really a hill that you want to die on, right? Is this something that is, if someone feels strongly, if you feel strongly, then great, you should make your point. But you should also understand that the most important thing for you as an executive and for the rest of your team is to get to the right answer. And that is very different. Getting to the right answer is very different from you individually being right. Sometimes they're the same thing, but they're not always the same thing. And you have to be humble enough and self-aware enough to know if the right answer is not what you had proposed, and then you got to move on. And where I've seen people fall apart is they just get so fixated on, they don't, they don't care about what the right answer is. They just want to be right. Mm -hmm. And they'll dig in their heels and they'll, you know, just be a little bit difficult to work with and, and, you know, generally speaking, that's not going to bode well for your career. So what are some of these other self-sabotaging moments that you've personally seen from folks in the executive ranks? Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I, how much time do you have? Uh, um, 
here's here's a quick example we had at axon we were putting together a video for for a certain purpose and the video the point of the video was re to really highlight a lot of the great work that the team had, had done and to send a message just sort of summarizing all the great work and it was a very feel-good video but it was also a little bit of starting to help reposition Axon because we had this brand and this image as this stodgy, you know, weapons maker. And we were really trying to reposition ourselves more as like a, you know, as, as the tech company, the forward thinking tech company that we are. So in the video, one of the things that we decided to do was to move away from the music that we had historically used in our videos, which were basically, you know, sounded like you were watching a, a Zoloft commercial. Uh, and we, we went with something a little edgier. It was some electronic music. It had a little bit of edge to it and just a little bit more contemporary and, you know, current. One of the execs called me after he saw the video, we had, we were ready to publish the next day. And he's like, I saw the video, you got to stop it. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, the music's horrible. And I, and I laughed. I said, oh, that, all right, if that's your only critique, then that, I think I feel pretty good. He's like, no, really the music is horrible. And he proceeded to just give it an impassioned plea and was like leaning a little too hard on it. It was the kind of thing where he's just very representative of the types of things he would be very painful about like the weirdest things right and again like going back to this idea of like choosing which battles you want to fight everything was a battle with him everything and it just became very difficult and ultimately we just decided that you know we we're going to part ways because that person was difficult to work with i see a lot of execs focus more on their own accomplishments they tend to be a little bit protect they sometimes they feel threatened when you have a very high performing team mm -hmm. and you have some folks underneath you that are their stars are rising you want to help them rise right you want to help them get to where they're going because that's going to make you ultimately look like a better leader i've always taken this approach i've always felt like i want the people that report to me to shine and, and in some cases to outshine me because ultimately that looks that looks great for me and where i see this idea of self-sabotaging is when execs try to hold their teams down. Ultimately, the cream always rises to the top. Always. When you've got someone who's a rock star, pe people will always see that. And if you're trying to hold your team down because you're worried about what that person, what how they may sort of step on your toes, that always I've seen works against you. And that's almost always stemming from insecurity, don't you think? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely getting branded as a as insecure not willing to help others and being kind of set in your ways stubborn if you will unwielding un, un, unwilling to listen to other uh, opinions those are definitely pitfalls for the executive positions what's i think we we did the first two what's the third one that you had for us the third one is to not drink your own Kool-Aid like everybody <laughs> you know it like everyone should be confident, but don't be overconfident. When you get to be an executive, clearly you've been doing something right. You've been doing it for a long time and you've earned your role. Uh, what you don't want to do is drink too much of your own Kool-Aid and recognize that you have to really understand that your success as an executive is really more about your ability to influence than it is about your individual ability to do any one thing. I had a manager tell me once that you know, you're now approaching the point in your career where what you can do with your laptop, just Jawad and his lap, you know, in his Dell <laughs> sitting in a conference room, those days are behind you now. Like you really have to start understanding how to influence. And one thing you know, we didn't talk about was like, what exactly does an executive mean? It means different things at different companies, even within the same company, it sometimes means different things. Like for example, at Axon, we're a publicly traded company. We have five 
Section 16 or publicly named officers. But then our executive team, we actually consider to be a little bit bigger than that because we've got folks that aren't necessarily publicly named officers, but they have huge jobs with huge teams and functions, et cetera. So once you're at that level, even Rick, our CEO, even he doesn't bark out orders and people follow them. You have very strong opinions and people who are very passionate. We've got a board of directors. They've got their own opinions. And if you take this mindset that you've just, you know, that you, you can walk on water, you can do individually is the most important thing, then you're not going to be around for much longer, you know, as an executive, what you really have to do is understand that you're part of a team and that the greatest skill that you can develop is to lead through influencing. And you can't do that if you've drunk your own Kool-Aid. Exactly. I keep hearing notes of uh, narcissism through this as, as being a real way to pitfall. And, and as you and I both know, there are a lot of narcissists at the upper levels of companies, but I don't think they stay there very long, do they? That's 100% correct. <laughs> we could name names, couldn't we? Yep. <laughs> so this has been fantastic. And I hope this has been some food for thought for those of you that are thinking about the executive ranks. And, and I think that the message, if I'm hearing correctly, and it's certainly what I've taught before, is you have to act like an executive before you get the role, just like you do in any other area. You have to you have to act like a leader before you get a leadership title. You have to act like a manager before you get managerial responsibilities. It doesn't work the other way around. They don't look at you and say, okay, now, now we want you to start acting like a leader. Here's the title. It does, it works in the other way around. That's a, that's hundred percent right. So tell listeners how they can find you. Tell us the name of your book again and tell, give us a little, a little blurb about that and how they can find you. And I'm going to put all of that in the show notes as well. Yeah. So my book is called What They Didn't Tell Me, How to Be a Resilient Leader and Build Teams You Can Trust. And it's on Amazon, paperback, uh, hardcover. There's a Kindle book, obviously. We've got an audio book coming out, I believe, in the next couple of weeks. And I'm pretty excited about that. And I, you, can, you, know, you can reach me at jawadasan.com. If you go to my website, uh, you can reach out to me, to me through there. You can also order my book. If you, if you order it through my website, then you get a signed copy. I can't sign the ones on Amazon, obviously. Love it. Love it. Well, this has been fabulous. You guys, I hope that you have gotten some great insights on entering into and remaining in the executive ranks. Uh, I will have Jawad's email address in the show notes. So if you want to reach out to him and ask him any questions, I'm sure he would be glad to help you in that regard. And uh, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care. You've been listening to the Exclusive Career Coach with Lisa Edwards, CEO of Exclusive Career Coaching. It would be great if you would rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, I want to be your career coach, so be sure to ask questions about your career management challenges and job search situation. Until next time.